Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. In our first podcast of 2024, we're discussing innovation and healthcare in the NHS. With me to discuss that is Professor Dame Anna Dominichak, Regius Professor of Medicine at the University of Glasgow and Chief Scientist Health at the Scottish Government. Professor Dominichak, welcome to the podcast. Hello, and uh, thank you very much for having me in January. Thank you. So before diving into innovation in healthcare, um, can you say a little bit about the role of the Chief Scientist Health at the Scottish Government? Yes, delighted to do so. So there is Chief Scientist Health and Chief Scientist Office, and together we plan and convene the strategy and policy for health research in Scotland uh, with a focus and core in the NHS, but working broadly with stakeholders in academia, so clinician scientists, but also life sciences industry. And I frequently call it a triple helix. And I believe that innovation in health needs that combination of NHS, academia, and life sciences industry. If I could add briefly, we were 50 at the end of last year, and we celebrated our golden anniversary of the chief scientist and chief scientist office by international meeting on the topic we're going to discuss today. Fantastic. Well, many congratulations on 50. And let's dive into this topic of innovation in healthcare and the NHS. And I guess like a lot of people, I, I've seen changes to healthcare over my lifetime, but I've I've never really, really thought about the process by which research and innovation on the one hand leads to some of these changes actually being delivered in healthcare on the other hand. Um, and I imagine some innovations are targeted specifically at the healthcare sector and others IT is an obvious one, transform many different areas of life of which health is one. Um, so unpack this for me. So to bring new innovation into the NHS, how does the process actually work? Yes, thank you. This is a big, big question because there isn't a one process. There isn't an established one route but I think I've thought about it long and hard, and I think this is right. There shouldn't be one route because first do not harm is so important in health service. Of course, it's important in every way innovation comes to our lives, but in health, it's even more important. So there are many ways, many processes and the way I see it, and I would like to see it in Scotland, is that there should be end-to-end -end process. I think with discovery science in our best academia, in our great universities that do discovery research in clinical and health arena, and then you have a complex translation that needs to be facilitated well before anything could be adopted into the NHS. And in all systems, including Scotland, we have these various stages of translation 
that chief scientist office encourages. And this again needs this triple helix collaboration. I do not believe that, you know, colleagues, the best colleagues in academia could translate without NHS and industry. So you need collaborative work on translation. But the most difficult step in this journey is adoption to our NHS or any health system. And we're not alone with this difficulty. There are lots of good ideas, lots of technological and other advances, but that last step, adopting into NHS is difficult. So in Scotland, we created within last, let's say, 18 months, something that helps that last step, that adoption. We call it uh, ANIA, which stands for Accelerated National Innovation Adoption. And the idea is to have a almost gateway system that allows to prioritize, select, scan the horizon and bring things to adoption in a national once for Scotland way. So I can see a whole lot of things to pull out of that. Um, I want to talk about adoption in a minute, but just before then you were talking about translation uh, as as being a, a challenge. Why is translation complicated? Who does it in Scotland in the healthcare industry? And how will yeah. that then feed into adoption, which we'll, we'll talk about in a moment? Yes. So we do fund three um, regional innovation hubs in Scotland. There are, of course, other ways, but that's our pathway, let's say, this end-to-end -end pathway. These three hubs are, as one would expect, east, north, and west. And they bring together that triple helix opportunities mm. For example, we're funding innovation fellows who always work with mentors who already have been involved in health innovation, but also bring industry big and small into the party. And very frequently, almost always, there is an academic involvement. So there will be projects that try to translate, whether it's Scottish discovery science or international, it doesn't matter, try to translate to come closer to adoption. And because Scotland is right size, our health community is the right size, we can easily feed that ANIA pathway, that adoption pathway from successful projects. There won't be many, but those that have succeeded. So to give some examples, for example, we all talk about AI and healthcare. Two of our hubs already been trying to use AI for assessment of chest X-rays to accelerate you know, the early diagnosis of lung cancer. And this is now in translational path, but we wait and hope that this would be ready 
for adoption. So we have that feeder system from translation to adoption. So that's uh, that's well understood. And you're then bringing things into this very complicated thing that you've talked about, this adoption and and this new agency that's relatively new. It's in not Scotland. an agency. It's collaboration. OK, collaboration. so help me out if it's not an agency, then if, it, if it's not a physical place, how does that collaboration actually work? Who, who is, is helping it work? Right, there is a physical place, and it is the Golden Jubilee Hospital, one of our national health boards in Scotland, uh, that has team of people who bring together various expertise across Scotland, and that's Anya. So that would be some twenty plus um, colleagues some working full-time, some part-time on innovation, looking and preparing for that get gateway process. Above it, we have a governance system that brings together senior colleagues from the NHS, Scottish government with one industry representative and some academic input. And this is that it's called Innovation Design Authority uh, to help to make decisions, these gateway decisions, not to waste time, to quickly decide what goes forward and then to assess whether given innovation, let's say my example is going to be digital dermatology because it's already past number of gateways and it's in adoption stage, whether this given innovation is ready to adopt at scale in all 14 health boards across Scotland. And I think that process is unique. We haven't seen it in other jurisdictions. So... It sounds very exciting. Are you uh, far enough into the process to be able to measure an improvement compared with the previous system? Yeah. Uh, and I guess the, the the question is what what are the remaining challenges to make make this process even even better? There are lots of challenges. Challenges are, you know, this is this is difficult. It's, we know it's difficult. I think we have worked for a number of years uh, set up for us, but yes, so we have been able not yet to evaluate this first or couple first uh, programs, but we could have modeled it on the data we already have. And we know, for example, the digital dermatology, which means picture of the skin lesion from primary to secondary care to reduce number of unnecessary appointments, to put people at ease, to give answers when the answers can be given quickly, is has a chance to reduce waiting lists, something that is, is a big problem, by 50%. So mm. that's the modeling at the moment. We, but we will, of course, evaluate it when the time is ripe, we've just started. And 
you talked about having both academics and uh, an industry representative on these bodies. Uh, to what extent are both of those groups feeding into this whole process of innovation? Is there a, a vibrant healthcare technology uh, industrial sector in Scotland? Is there a vibrant academic community? I, I genuinely don't know. So this is for my information. Yeah. So life sciences sector in Scotland has always been very strong. It's one of big three for Scotland. I have engaged first as an academic for many years with life sciences colleagues across the board, both big pharma, clearly clinical trials are a hugely important part of everything we do, in particular commercial clinical trials, but also SMEs, small companies, um, you know, sometimes um, these small companies bring real, very important innovations, particularly in digital data, AI, machine learning. So that engagement has been big thing in Scotland always. In fact, I spend my Christmas assessing the uh, nominations for life sciences awards for Scotland, which is an annual event, uh, which I have supported for many years. So yes, it is a community that is pretty much uh, very lively and present and important. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about something else. Because um, you were talking earlier about the fact that Scotland was the right size to do some of these things at a at a national level. Um, and I just want to see to what extent do these things and should these things be done at that kind of national Scottish level? To what extent are there regional and local differences? And, and one example, for example, uh, might be that obviously you have uh, a, a number of cities and larger um, conurbations, but you also have some remote uh, and island communities and, and so on in Scotland. Um, does that change some of these priorities or innovations or, or how does that how does that work? Yeah, I think there will always be a need to look and incorporate different needs and what I haven't mentioned is that we work very, very closely with health board chief executives. There are 14 mm. territorial health boards in Scotland. So the structure is different than in the rest of the United Kingdom. That is helpful because we frequently discuss. I believe that innovations could only be adopted if they want it by people who have to deal with it day in, day out at the call phase. And you're absolutely right that there will be differences in highlands and islands as opposed to Edinburgh. And this is taken into account in discussions how to implement, how to do it. You know, you can't go to all 14 boards at the same time. There will be prioritization and what's appropriate where. So it's not one type fits all, it must be adjusted to local needs. There will be also things that will work well in rural communities and innovations that will start there and might be taken broader. Um, and we have examples of those where, for example, uh, doing a procedure that doesn't require complex endoscopy 
but can be done simpler with simplified procedure is very, very appropriate for rural communities. So we try to be very flexible. That's really the key. Having said that, some things need to be implemented, adopted at scale. And if they not, we're losing momentum. Well, let me take you the other scale and move up from Scotland to the UK as a whole. Uh, I'm interested in how learning takes place between the nations of the UK. I mean, this sounds like a fantastic initiative that that might be re replicable in Wales or in Northern Ireland or in England or, or some English regions or whatever. And equally, there'll be ideas coming from there that, that can feed into and benefit Scotland. How does that conversation? How does that sort of co-learning across the UK work? So on research and innovation, we work very much as four nations, and there is a lot of exchange. So for example, our colleagues in uh, Department of Health and Social Care, the National Institute for Health and Care Research, organized the round table with industry that we were invited and attended, and it was extremely interesting. We exchanged a lot of information. Uh, and I think this ability to work together, particularly on innovation and innovation adoption, technological innovation, uh, is going to grow as we go along. There is certainly um, a dedication to exchange. For example, one of our future programs that we're looking at will be on type 2 maturity onset diabetes. And here, colleagues in England are already implemented, implementing this, and we are learning and exchanging information and adding some things that could be specifically added in Scotland to, to these. So this is diabetes remission and prevention. So that goes much more towards preventative medicine, towards community interventions rather than hospital or primary care. So very, very interesting and positive interactions with colleagues across four nations. Hmm. Well, just as we uh, come to the end of this short discussion, all of what we've talked about is systems and theory and whatever, but let's put some color on that. Um, because you will be in the system. What are some of the, the key innovations being developed right now that you can see transforming Scottish healthcare over the next 10, 15 years? Yeah. So I think, as I just mentioned, going much more towards community and prevention. And I think this is not about Scotland. This is about all health systems all over the world, whatever their... Um, you know, fiscal or other arrangements. This is because of aging populations and demand going up. We need to move to early diagnosis prevention, working with communities. So the two I am really interested in are diabetes, type two maturity onset diabetes, remission and prevention. And because this is, a revolution in chronic disease area. So my own um, 
academic activity has always been in hypertension, high blood pressure, that's very close with diabetes. What we see with type two diabetes is that we can reverse the disease. And this is revolutionary in um, chronic disease treatment worldwide. And it was UK scientists, in fact, Scottish and English working together, have done it first, published in top journals, but this is now ready to apply to our populations. And because diabetes links with obesity, with cardiovascular disease, with renal disease, if we truly either prevent or achieve remission, we'll be reducing this later complications. So we'll be both preventing problems tomorrow, but also in 10 and 20 years. And I think this is a great example how innovation in preventative and in community, uh, what we increasingly call precision public health, could truly change the demand on the NHS and other health systems worthwhile. And the second example, I think, is this lung cancer AI that I mentioned, and perhaps also AI helping in other areas like assessing mammograms, assessing skin lesions, this digital dermatology that we already doing could be an early layer of building AI to help, but not instead of doctors, in addition to doctors, in my mm -hmm. view. Well, that, I mean, both of those sound very, very exciting. And certainly um, I've not come across the term precision public health, but I think it describes very well that first example that you were giving. And if if there's a way of really treating type two diabetes in the way that you've said, both preventing and putting in revision, that's that's incredibly exciting. Um, wonderful. Listen, we've come to the end of our time. Um, but Professor Dominic, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Dame Anna Dominicak, Regis Professor of Medicine at the University of Glasgow and Chief Scientist Health at the Scottish Government. Details of the work of the Foundation for Science and Technology can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk, including details of all our events, our journal and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.